Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Benmergi. Welcome to the Plan B podcast. Plan B is a production of Upstream. If you want information on Upstream and their work on the social determinants of health, then please go to www.thinkupstream.net and you'll find everything you need right there. This podcast is also made possible through the auspices of the government of Canada. And today we're going to talk about the economy. Yes, that word, the economy. What's the effect of COVID-19 on everything from how we work, when we work, what we buy, who gets uh, you know, funded, who gets supported, all of these different ideas. And uh, nobody better to do that than my guest. Armin Yelnesian is an economist and currently a fellow with the Atkinson Foundation doing research on the future of workers. Hi, Armin. Thanks so much for having me, Ralph. It's a delight to be with you. So there's so much to talk about. I want to start with, in light of COVID-19 and the work you're doing and the research you're doing, what is the future for workers? Because there's a spotlight here that's kind of showing the glaring differences and gaps in what we think a worker is and how we should compensate them. So what is the future for workers? Well, you know, when I first started as the Atkinson Fellow on the Future of Workers, uh, the the big storyline was, uh, will the robots eat all of the jobs? Are we going to be facing a future with not enough work for too many people? And I was really looking forward to doing, you know, a bit of the man bites dog version of this storyline because there's we know because of population aging and because of the need for more care uh, as populations age um, and the need for more child care as there are fewer working age people and the need for more care and feeding of the brain as transitions speed up between types of jobs, that the caring economy, which is very hard to replace with robots, was a part of the future for workers that we weren't talking about. And at that time, I was thinking there's a lot of work to be done to kind of bring up everybody's economic literacy to the fact that we're going to be dealing with labor shortages, maybe even more so than labor surpluses because of technology. Because, mm. you know, at the time, everything was about very dystopic, that the future of work was not enough work. Um, because of technology. Well, here we are, COVID-19 basically pressed, like it was like throwing gasoline on a fire. It was an accelerant for this very conversation about the caring economy, about what population aging might mean, about what it might mean to have um, an essential workforce. Uh, it's, It's been quite eerie watching this happen in such a fast way. So the the long and that's the long answer to yeah. your question and the short answer is the future of workers is exactly what we're going to make it on the other side of this i can't tell you what the landscape will look like because covid-19 is as we are speaking right now blitzkrieging huge sections of the economy and what will be left standing on the other side of this is completely unknowable right now so let's take it from the from the lens of the person themselves and work. So there's a few things that have been happening because we are in isolation, because we have to change what we do, because retail and service are in the situation they're in, where I don't know if people aren't wondering, what have I been doing? Why, why have I been driving two hours, three hours a day to get to a job that I'm doing from my home? What happens to telework? You know, what happens to retail if you can order everything from your house? So 
are we going to find that we're in, in positive ways, not just negative, but in positive ways, looking at work and saying, maybe I don't need to do this and maybe the employer doesn't need to have me doing this in the same way? Without question, technology can be our friend and COVID is helping us learn exactly how that could work. But how much of this we return to what was pre-middle middle of March is unknowable right now. Uh, I think it will have huge implications for things like office space. It will have huge implications for work-life balance. It'll have huge implications for productivity if more of us work from home and a big chunk of those people have kids running around at home, even when they go back to school. So I think there's a lot that we don't know yet, but absolutely you've put your finger on the role of technology in facilitating uh, remote work and in facilitating online purchases and delivery, all of which could be actually a pivot towards something that's cleaner and more, life-affirming in the yeah. amount of time we spend commuting. And then there's the idea of, um, well, creative destruction. Mm-hmm. Somebody was writing that uh, capitalism uh, thrives on downturns, that they reinvent ideas and they reinvent things. I'm not so sure that's been true in the last few downturns. I think we went back to business as usual. And there are people who are assuming that we're going to have a consumption explosion when everybody gets out of their house, but that it won't be sustainable. Are we in a place where there is a positive renewal and a constructive kind of destruction that we're, we're going to experience? Again, it depends on the pandemic itself and how we truncate contagion and um, the duration of lockdown and the number of lockdowns we have. Mm. There will not be a resurgence in demand if too many businesses collapse. Um, As you know, uh, going into this crisis, Canada was possibly the most indebted nation uh, in terms of household indebtedness. Uh, 172% of incomes owed in debt on average across the um, household sector. And we had already started to see a swell in the rate of insolvencies, largely triggered by the collapse of oil prices, because so much of Canada's investment was in the oil and gas sector. And that just looked like it was not going to be sustainable so a lot of companies going under and then the you know the the supply chains that supported those companies so we are you know we are getting all sorts of lifelines from governments right now for income some pressing pause on payments for credit cards mortgages property taxes but pressing pause is different than wiping the slate clean And if too many businesses and households default, then there will be no upsurge, no massive upsurge in demand. So everything depends on how we behave ourselves now and what happens to the rate of infection when we let the brakes up on economic activity and how soon, and we will need to reapply them again because this virus operates in waves. So it will not just be one event, it'll be more than one event and how many businesses it knocks out and how many households it knocks out will determine how creative the destruction is or if it's just plain old destruction. 
Right. So the other part of this, I guess, trying to think positively about it, is when we need infrastructure and when we need large-scale projects for employment, uh, when they come, this could be a moment where we actually turn towards the renewable energy sources, the renewable infrastructure, the retrofitting. I mean, in Toronto alone, you could get 400,000 houses retrofitted and saving energy for people. We might be able to do that, right? A hundred percent. And given that the COVID uh, got crazy intertwined with OPEC's decision to flood markets, which cratered oil prices, uh, there is like everything is combining to say pivot and pivot now to clean energy. Uh, so you're absolutely right on the hard infrastructure stuff. But you know what COVID is showing us too in pairing back to the essential economy is how much of the post-COVID world will have to be about caring for one another mm -hmm. uh, because of population aging and because with every passing month, We've got a smaller and smaller working age cohort supporting those who are too old and too young to work and too sick to work. And that has been a demographic train that has been coming down the tracks for decades. We could see it coming down the tracks. So yes, we've raised immigration numbers, but it will not be enough to offset this very real shrinking cohort of working age people who, if you're going to have all hands on deck, they're going to need childcare. They're going to need better sick leave. They're going to need better health care provisions. All of these things are part of the social infrastructure that is currently undersupplied and not publicly insured and not affordable, accessible, high quality enough for what we're gonna need. So that's all part of the post COVID reconstruction era. If we take our lesson from what the essential economy looks like right now. One of the other things that was a bubbling conversation but still has not come to fruition but is now being laid bare, I think is the gig economy and the supports and safety nets for precarious work and for the kinds of people who now young people expect contracts. They don't expect benefits, pensions, long-term work, full-time employment. These have all been these sort of uh, workarounds to maximize profits. Now we find that you have governments who need to help everybody turning around and going, we'll even help the musicians and the artists. We'll even, you know, now when you know you're starting to help musicians and artists, you're in a different world. <laughs> so true. <laughs> so what do we do? Like, is this, this, this could be another, you know, teachable moment as Mr. Obama used to say. You are a hundred percent correct. Again, Mr. Ben Murphy, uh, do you ever get tired of being right? Well, you know, uh, what was that thing from broadcast news? It must be very hard to be right all the time. And Holly Hunter goes, yes, it is. <laughs> so if you're channeling your inner Holly Hunter, My, you've got it made. <laughs> then I got to cry and unplug the phone, but I'll do that later. <laughs> but to your point about um, revisiting the gig economy, let me just say from an evidentiary point of view, we don't know how big it is, but we do know that young people have um, a third of their of the job market of people that were employed before COVID went to people doing temporary work. And that's the highest share of anybody. Now, are these people the shock troops of the new normal? Or will, as the boomers move along, will they actually pick up the good jobs? Will those good jobs still be there? Uh, we don't know the answer to that. That's a counterfactual that we will only see through a rear view mirror. Um, but 
what this moment, as you rightly point out, shows is that there's too much precarity out there to have a sustained and sustainable economy. And there's a, a kind of growing awakening of the fact that if you're going to get to the other side of this, you've got to protect people. You've got to provide some stability. There's just too much instability. So, uh, you know, from your lips to the federal government's ears, let us hope that this parts of this emergency economic response uh, last. You know, uh, there are moments in history, the, the Franklin Delano Roosevelt moment uh, after the Depression, where there is kind of a permission that happens because of the massiveness of the financial situation, there are things that governments don't have to pay as much attention to their promised ideologies as they do to what's the best solution. What do you think, in your own opinion, about Canada as an economy? Where do you think we're gonna go with this? I really don't know, Ralph, but I have to say that as the news trickles in about the scale of the plague and the fact that there is going to be a locust explosion in Africa, Iran, and Pakistan. Um, I'm saying cue the third part of the biblical trinity and do debt, like wipe the debt off the books, a la Deuteronomy. Maybe we're going to have to do crazy things. Like we're already into, we're through the looking glass when it comes to the value of money. We're talking about paying people that have always been underpaid. We're talking about forgiving or deferring debts. We're going to come to the other side of this with unpayable debts. So I think this is creating a whole new moment for us to consider what is valuable in the economy? What is essential in the economy? And suddenly it's not about profits. It's about people uh, in a way that we haven't you know, really, talk, we've talked past one another in this regard for quite some time. You know, when the establishment institutions like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank and the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development all say we need to have inclusive growth in the wake of the 2008 global financial crisis, you think, what the heck do they mean? And what they meant was bottom up. They meant protecting and lifting up the bottom. Uh, but they can't say that yet. But now we're seeing exactly what it means to protect and lift up the bottom, that none of us are safe unless all of us are safe. Literally, it's a life and death issue. So I think we're looking at a whole new uh, set of values uh, that we are going to be able to discuss because we've experienced them in real time together. And that opens up a suite of new possibilities, as you pointed out, that would be very similar to what happened in the 1930s. You know, one of the things I keep wondering about is, you know, 2008 and now, we get into this situation where money is literally created. Mm -hmm. They just print money. And it makes, I guess, some people wonder, well, what are we really doing here if this is all kind of the Wizard of Oz? If we can just create wealth out of nothing, then what are, what is the human endeavor really about in, in post-COVID age? Well, yet again, you're channeling your inner Holly Hunter because that is the, uh, that is the question that we will be discussing once we get to the other side of this. It's like, what kind of a world do we want to create now that we got through it? 
given that we just learned that we can create any world we need to create, so long as we are willing to do it together. So, you know, we went from a world where there was almost every single day was fraught by political frictions uh, and lack of agreement to a world where everybody more or less agreed on the direction in which we needed to grow. Whether we go back to, or whether we can maintain any kind of civility and understanding of how fragile life is and how we need to be in it with one another and for one another, I don't know, because there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of fake news out there, dare I say it. There's a lot of people who have got a vested interest in us not getting along, but maybe we will get along. And on a global scale, because this has been a global threat, maybe this is actually a portal to a new type of globalization where we've got each other's backs. One more thing to me that I'm wondering about is, you know, the federal government, from what I understand, can borrow money at 0% interest, but the municipalities have to balance budgets and the provinces can't borrow at that rate. How are we going to manage, you know, right now Edmonton and Calgary are saying, we don't have any money. Vancouver is saying, we're going to have such a huge hole, we don't know how to fill it. Uh, not, there are some who are saying, no, no, we don't need the money, don't worry. But how are we going to make sure that those, those levels of government that don't have the same leeway as 0% interest for the feds, how are they going to be able to get out of this? And will it mean that the third wave after this is over will be about how to replenish those stocks in those cities and in those provinces and territories? I don't think it'll be the third wave. I think it's going to be the second shoe to fall. Uh, so the first wave of federal activity was to stabilize incomes. The second wave is going to be making sure that the nonprofit and NGO sector has what it needs to provide food and shelter to people in the community. And the third shoe to fall is going to be municipal, um, muni supporting municipalities that are delivering the day-to-day -day services because there are going to be a number of them that are unable to withstand this period in which user fees and property taxes not coming in is not matched by less services. They're paying for the services that are needed. And so the federal government will have to step in, not unlike what was done in the 1930s. How that plays out, how many cities get support, how targeted it is, how much that happens through the provinces, because cities in this country are a creation of the provinces, according to our constitution, that's all to be worked out. But you bet your booties that there will be some kind of strategy that is bankrolled by the federal government, because it's not that it can print any money, it's that it has sovereign control over how much money is in circulation. Um, and we saw with uh, in the wake of the 2008 crisis and Grexit, that if you are in part of a currency union, you can't issue your own currency. You must meet the uh, dictates of a, you know, a higher authority when it comes to financial flows. And our provinces are in that situation in Canada. Right now, Canada can do pretty much whatever it wants because it's not going to trigger inflation. And that's really the litmus test is, are you triggering inflation by just throwing money into the system? And there's no inflationary pressures out there right now.
now. So we've got a bit of runway, but then what happens on the other side of this is unclear. What if we get food shortages that cram up prices? What if in a few months, because oil is so cheap, everybody starts spending a lot on oil and gas instead of doing the pivot and prices start driving up? What if we get um, you know, people that were uh, had their rents deferred suddenly getting kicked out and rents getting jacked up? We don't know what's on the other side of this. We don't know what kind of inflationary pressures will be on the other side of this. But going into it, there's nothing stopping the federal government from having everybody's back. And thus far, we have seen a government that has been willing to do, as they put it, whatever it takes. Kudos. It's an existential crisis and one nobody saw coming. Uh, it might actually give language to the next one. Uh, where people can talk about flattening the climate change curve as well. So uh, there was um, there was a great commentator that I heard just in the last 24 hours saying we've seen that we when we act together with both good public policy and goodwill can flatten this curve, which raises the question, what other curves can we flatten? And I think that's the moment we are slowly awakening to. And we're just going to need great thought leaders like yourself, Mr. Ben Murray, uh, to help us understand what are those curves that together we could flatten, that we should have flattened long ago. And I refer to things like uh, striking inequalities going into this that have got huge racial dimensions uh, that we need to tackle the sooner the better. Um, So I think there's lots we can do with willingness and good public policy but what we need to do is convince ourselves that we can do it. Armina, thank you very much for your time. I truly appreciate it. Uh, it's a great pleasure to speak with you and really keep that Holly Hunter thing going on. <laughs> Take care. Armin Yelnesian is a researcher and currently a fellow with the Atkinson Foundation doing some research on the future of workers. Well, that's it for our Plan B podcast in this particular time of COVID-19. And uh, if you want more information on Upstream, which brings you this podcast, then go to www.thinkupstream.net and you'll find all the information you want there about the great work that they do. Um, Upstream is part of all this, but so is the Government of Canada, and we thank them for their support.